Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The podcast of conductor David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our mythology program began with not one, but two world premiere compositions by young Greek composers, both currently living in America. The way the concert came into being was that two seasons ago, also in February, the orchestra and I performed a program called A Night in the Mediterranean, featuring new works by a young Italian, a young Portuguese composer, as well as a young Greek, alongside some Spanish music on the second half. And the Greek piece was by a young composer, a very gifted young composer, named Kostis Kritsotakis. It was a mandolin concerto, which I had performed earlier in the year, actually in the summer, in a wonderful music festival just outside of Lisbon in Portugal. And I had been so excited by this very Greek-sounding mandolin concerto, and by the soloist who played it, Dimitris Marinos, that I decided to bring the piece to our capital region so that our capital region audience could experience the excitement of the piece. And it was a very wonderful success, I thought. And because of that, I then began to talk to Kostis Kritsotakis about writing a more ambitious piece, a piece that might feature the choir of our local Greek church, the choir of St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Church in Albany, which is led by a wonderful gentleman named Harry Ermides. And Kostis was very excited by the idea and began thinking about it. And then as I began planning how to program this work, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to find another young Greek composer or two and do a concert entirely centered around the idea of up-and-coming Greek composers, of whom we Americans know virtually nothing. So that's how the mythology idea took flight, and I found another very gifted young Greek composer, currently living and working in Boston, Massachusetts, named Panos Liropoulos, and asked him also to write a piece based on myth. So now I had a piece by Kostis. He chose for his subject matter uh, the journeys of Odysseus, and on the other hand, Panos was very much inspired by the Orpheus myth. And so he wrote a piece about Orpheus. And then to balance the program, I thought it would be nice to put a classic on the second half. And for some reason, Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony came to my mind because it deals with the natural world and with this kind of wonderful idea of nature as a, an almost mythological, mythical kind of entity. So I found that the, the works were very complementary, and that's how our mythology program came into being. The work by Panos Liropoulos which opens the program, is, as I mentioned, inspired by the life of Orpheus, the greatest of all musicians and artists of antiquity. The work is called Ode for Orchestra, Moments in the Life of Orpheus. And it's a, roughly a 17-minute purely orchestral piece, which is entirely abstract. And yet, interestingly, in the score and in the parts, Panos has indicated where the different events in Orpheus's life took place. At the beginning, the birth of Orpheus, and then uh, Orpheus's music, and then Orpheus's love for his beloved wife, Eurydice, the loss of Eurydice, Orpheus's attempt to go to the underworld to rescue her from death, and then also finally, the end of Orpheus's life, he was ripped apart, essentially, by the Thracian women, the women of Thrace, ostensibly because he wouldn't perform the sexual favors they required 
And there's an incredible sort of end to the myth where his body, his dismembered body parts were floated down the river Styx and his head arrived in a different region of Greece, but still singing this incredibly beautiful music. And then finally he was allowed to die. The music, as you can imagine, although it's purely abstract and you don't need to know exactly what happens where necessarily to enjoy the piece, is very episodic in that it has extremely beautiful lyrical passages juxtaposed against the more violent passages, the descent into the underworld being one of the most violent and the second most violent being the the end of the piece, almost the end of the piece, when the Thracian women rip him apart, essentially. The work features an extremely prominent harp part because, of course, Orpheus was a a great musician and played the lyre, I guess an antecedent of the modern-day harp. And so the harp takes on an absolute starring role in the piece, Um, both at the very beginning, you'll notice at the very outset, and then there are two extended, essentially cadenzas, episodic periods, the second of which is kind of a strange thing. The music is all original except for this middle section for which Panos has used that very famous uh, adagietto from Gustav Mahler's Fifth Symphony uh, and has put it in the harp part and then put these kind of strange, disturbing orchestral clouds around it, as he described it, to sort of describe the, the love between Orpheus and Eurydice and the fact that it was ill-fated or that it was destined to, to a tragic end. Anyway, the, the music is quite fascinating as it proceeds uh, with this very prominent harp part and with really stunning orchestration, especially given that the piece is written for a rather small, roughly 45-member orchestra. So now the world premiere of Panos Liropoulos's Ode for Orchestra, Moments in the Life of Orpheus. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The second work on our program, an even larger scale work than Panos's piece, about a 23-minute or so piece, is again a world premiere. This one by Kostis Kritsotakis, who had written that beautiful mandolin concerto that we played a few seasons back. The work is called The Voyage of Odysseus, or Odysseus as we Americans say. And it's uh, in six movements or six parts, fascinating kind of piece. When I had first talked to Costis, I had asked him whether he would be willing to include the choir of St. Sophia. He was happy to do that. And he also very much wanted to write it for a, a tenor, a tenor singer who would both sing in Greek and narrate in English. And so, in fact, the piece kind of goes back and forth between narrated text in English and sung text, also some chanted text, all in Greek, uh, some of it rather ancient Greek, some of it modern Greek, and some of it not quite Greek gibberish, but sort of imagined pseudo-Greek. One of the poems, this interesting chanted part, is actually in a kind of made-up Greek of antiquity that never fully existed. Uh, The poems are by a number of different well-known, principally contemporary Greek poets, particularly a poet named Seferis, but there are other poems by Sarantaris, Elitis, Kariotakis, and two others as well. And so Costis has fashioned this this six-movement work to essentially be a meditation on Odysseus's journey as kind of a metaphor for the journey we all take through life. You know, Odysseus's journey when he took him years and years to get home from the Trojan War. And uh, yet this piece is a much more kind of uh, abstract metaphorical piece in that it is the journey of Odysseus as a metaphor for all of our journeys through life. At the same time, the narrated text, which is in English, has to do principally with Odysseus and these imaginings of what Odysseus was like as an old man returning home from the war. And the sung parts of the text are all actually poems 
essentially about the sea. So you have these, again, the sea as its own metaphor for life and also for the Greek world because Greece, of course, is surrounded on three sides by the sea and the sea plays such an important role in myth, Greek myth, as well as in, in Greek life. So you have these kind of two streams of ideas, the, the sea poetry, all of it in, in Greek, and the Odysseus poetry, all of it in English. So it's a fascinating kind of pseudo-folk piece. I found it extremely touching and beautiful. Costis writes in this very direct piece. He, he very much is interested in film music, and his music, I think, has a sort of direct nature that one often finds in film. So again, the, the work is in six parts. First, the introduction. Second, the song, I Believe That the Sea. Third, a melodrama, which is a, a spoken text over music. And El Tedete Kintia, that's this pseudo-imagined Greek language. The fourth part, the sea whispers and weaves, and a melodrama as well. The fifth part, melodrama number four, and four fine boats and islands too. And song number six, four fine boats and islands too. A fabulous kind of, again, a sort of imagined Greek folk song. This is all original material, the musical material, and yet particularly this last song, the sixth song, sounds like a a genuine folk song. The chorus, again, is the choir of St. Sophia Greek Orthodox Church, Harry Ermides, artistic director. Our tenor soloist is uh, the major European operatic star, Giorgio Aristo, who's just recently relocated to the United States, and we were happy to have him. He's actually of Greek ancestry and grew up in Beacon, New York, and went to Potsdam in New York uh, as a clarinet major before discovering that he had a gorgeous tenor voice. He's had a major career in Germany and just returned to our part of the world. He is the tenor, and there's also a a lovely cameo by a wonderful young soprano, Amanda Boyd. The work again, The Voyage of Odysseus, a world premiere by Kostis Kritsotakis. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The podcast of conductor David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The second half of our program featured one major classic masterpiece, Beethoven's Symphony No. 6, the Pastoral Symphony. A really singular work in Beethoven's oeuvre. In essence, it's almost like Beethovenian minimalism in that certainly in the first two movements, the music unfolds over kind of very broad spans of time and harmonically uh, moves very slowly, and yet there's all this inner motion but a great deal of repetition. In restudying this work, I was struck at how you know the first movement concerns itself with and this rhythmic figure that seems to go through 92% of it. And it occurred to me that even though this is a very gentle pastoral theme, obviously, that in essence it's a little bit similar to the Fifth Symphony, a companion piece of Beethoven's, completely different dramatic idea, very much more overtly dramatic piece, but in which that first movement is dominated by that three-eighth note figure. So in essence, this is kind of like the the mellow side of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's almost like the, the yang of its yin or the yin of its yang. The first two movements, as I said, are are rather filled with repose. The first movement called uh, Awakening of Cheerful Feelings on Arriving in the Country, an allegro manontropo, fast but not too fast. The second movement is a very interesting piece in that it's one of Beethoven's most extended movements. It has a very long 
theme that goes on and on, frankly, then gets repeated a great number of times. But it's it's an evocation of a brook, of a of a, a little rivulet, a, a little river seen by the brook, Andante Molto Mosso. Interestingly, it's Andante Molto Mosso. Andante is a walking tempo, but Molto Mosso means with much movement. And then the third movement, famous, wonderful scherzo, a merry assembly of the country folk. It's an allegro of actually a set of three different very wonderful rustic dances that leads really directly and quite suddenly into a thunderstorm, great early romantic depiction of weather. And then finally, the last incredibly beautiful movement, the shepherd's song, Happy Grateful Feelings After the Storm, an allegretto. The reason I find the Andante tempo so interesting, Andante molto mosso, with much movement, is that I tend to be very... uh, observant, dare I say, of Beethoven's metronome marks when I do these symphonies. You know, Beethoven went back at the end of, not at the end of his life, but but later in his life, in 1819, still before he'd written the Ninth Symphony, but when he had long ago already completed the first eight. And he had this wonderful newfangled device that his friend Melzel had created, the metronome. And he sat with a metronome and clocked what he thought were ideal tempos for all of the first eight symphonies, every movement. And he labeled them as such. And there's been a lot of contention, certainly over the last 100 or 150 years, about these metronome marks. For a long time, conductors just felt that they were too darn fast and that the pieces really needed to be slower. Particularly, Richard Wagner was the first of the sort of slow Beethoven conductors, I think, because he really wanted it to sound more like Wagner than like Beethoven. But in the last 30 or so years, conductors have gone back to really paying attention to Beethoven, Beethoven's metronome marks and have found, one, that the pieces are much more fleet and fast-moving than most of the recordings we all grew up with would indicate, and two, that they really are much closer to the great works of the classical masters, Mozart and Haydn, in that they were written for a relatively small orchestra, and they have these kind of wonderful lean textures, and when they go fast, they really sound much closer to Mozart and Haydn than they do to the Romantics. But I guess my feeling has always been that the Romantics wanted to reinvent Beethoven in their own image, and that's why they slowed it all down. So I was struck and actually kind of charmed that one of my board members uh, said to me afterwards, well, it was a lovely concert, but uh, my wife said that, you know, you just took the pastoral. It was so fast, it was a blur. And I said, well, well does she know it quite well? He said, oh, yes, she grew up with a recording, you know, Bruno Walter is it. And I thought, well, absolutely, because as lovely as Bruno Walter's interpretation was, it was roughly at half Beethoven's stated metronome tempo. So we try to make the scene by the brook go at his tempo and have that bubbling, gurgling sensibility to it. And the first movement, which really is in one, it's not one, da, 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 one and two and one and two and one, it's one, 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 it suddenly has a whole different, I think, much more joyful, lively feel. So I hope you like it. Certainly the world's big enough for all manners of Beethoven interpretations. And the nice thing about Mr. Beethoven is he's so good that he can survive every single interpretation any conductor wishes to inflict upon him. I tend to like to do it as I think it says to do it in the score, because I think that's kind of the nicest way to do these great works. But to each their own. So here now, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony in F major, the so-called Pastoral. It's played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.